Um, as someone who every week gets on this stage, um, I forget that um, not everybody likes to do that. And so whenever I ask somebody to read for a reading, it's always kind of a roll of the dice. And for a long time, I think the Molinas, I asked them, just, I was like, hey, will you guys do it again? And they're like, you, you only ask us. Like, this is in our early years. And they're like, ask some new people. So that's kind of been my philosophy is to grab a hold of some new faces and go, hey, would you like to be involved on stage and read the Advent reading? And so asking the weights for last week, and they, you guys did a great job, by the way, fantastic job. Um, and then he, Ben had found out that I had asked them, and he was super offended. He's like, dude, that's like, I love to be on stage. I'm like, all right, cool, let's do it. And you clearly have a gift. You could preach, actually, if you'd like to preach. So, but I might ask you, seriously. Um, no, brother, thanks for, thanks for reading. Let me pray for us. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 13, if you want to open your Bible as, as I'm praying. Lord, we've, we gather um, as a really humbled people. We're humbled at the fact that um, we have breath, we have life. We're humbled at the, um, at the fact that uh, we're, we're able to, to call you Father and that we're able to be in your presence with all of our inadequacies and all of our um, our mess, all of our um, our hurts, our griefs, our sorrows, our sins, all of it. And then because of Jesus Christ and what he has secured for us, we can enter into your presence into your holiness and, and you see Christ and you see your sons and your daughters. You don't see sins and sinners. That's a humbling thought. And as we come together each week to open your word and to worship you, we just pray, Holy Spirit, that this would never become just this rote exercise. Of, of religion and religious niceties and formalities. and That's a work, Lord, that only you can do, though. That's not anything we can fabricate or anything that I can do up here, or Adam or Logan or Emily or anybody who's on this stage can fabricate. Holy Spirit, we actually believe that in order for any of this to make sense and in order for any of this to mean anything to us, it has to be a supernatural work of your spirit. And so I would ask that this morning, even in this sermon, that even 30 minutes ago, I was just feeling as though it's just not coming together. Um, that you would use it. It is your word. It's not my word. It is your word. And so use your word. Pray in the name of Christ, amen. Um, so we're going to be in Matthew 13, 1 through 9, and then um, 18 through 23. Let me just read the parable for us. 
And then we're going to be in Psalm 126. This is the parable of the sower. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down and the whole crowd stood on the beach. He told them many things in parables, saying, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil, but when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And then move over to verse 18. This is the parable that I just read, explained. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. And for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. And for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. This is the reading of God's word. So, this idea of joy. If you look up the definition, it's really, it's really frustrating, actually, because it just says um, a feeling of great pleasure for something that is so significant that we all would agree we desire and long for and spend most of our lives pursuing and trying to find. That's frustrating. A feeling of great pleasure. Pleasure. That's it. Um, author Mark Manson, he believes that joy and happiness is most related actually to boredom. Isn't that interesting? He, he, he explains this. He would say boredom is sort of like a luxury. It's the good days. He writes, the vast majority of your life will be boring and not noteworthy, and that's Okay. He then goes on to explain how being bored sort of means like you're doing all right and it means you aren't currently struggling or grieving or hurting because someone who is experiencing a trial in their life wouldn't necessarily, you know, say that they're, they're bored, would they? They're, they're not bored. They're, they're fixated on whatever it is they're going through. And so boredom to an extent is the result of that like everything is in the right place. Everything is okay in life. 
Manson, though, actually believes that the struggles of life and in life teach us more than boredom does. And so he actually sort of celebrates the struggles of life in that sense, sort of like Paul, right? He reju- you can rejoice in suffering that lead us to be thankful for the boring times. Now, for, for the Christian, at least the Christian position on joy um, is what Sam Storm says, joy is the presence of God, right? So that's maybe a little bit of a deeper, more specific definition related to the Christian experience. Joy is the presence of God. So joy is not only a great pleasure, but it's a feeling of great pleasure, but it's also just an experience of an knowledge of the presence of God in your life. That, that's, that's ultimately the, the fullness of joy is the presence of God. And that presence brings a sense of peace that then translates to joy. And so like think of the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve in the first two chapters of Genesis, just spending time with the Lord. He creates them. He gives them dominion over the land and animals and all was well in the world. As they walked the land, like nothing to entertain them, right? Just the two of them in the presence of God. No trials yet. That doesn't come till Genesis 3. Like, don't you think they had moments of joyful boredom? We've all experienced it. We're not talking about loneliness. They had full fellowship with one another and with the Lord. But they maybe had a bored joy as a result of the fact that all was well in the world. In Paul's letter to the Romans, it's almost like he longed for them to know that sort of joy again when he wrote, when he wrote may the God of, of hope fill you with not just joy, but he says all joy. Not just some of it, but all of it. Fullness of joy. Or when he wrote to the Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always. And then I love this. He goes, and again I'll say, and again I'll say, and again I'll say, rejoice. But Paul, of all people, and the Christian view of the world, even for us today, is not to be naive, to bury our head and to not look out into the world and see the sorrow and the grief and the suffering. We fully embrace and recognize that trials will come. And don't just think big, significant trials. Think every internal trial or struggle that you experience on a daily basis. And so the question that rises to the surface is how are we supposed to experience joy in the suffering? Like James wrote, count it all joy when you experience trials. What? I don't know about you, but when it's, have you ever had a conversation with somebody about the the distinction between joy and happiness? We get really weird about it. Like we, we can't really, we can't really, um, like, no, 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 no. Happiness is like futile and passing and it kind of comes and goes and joy is sustained. It's always there. Okay. Okay. Like, maybe. Let me explain. Um, <clears throat> well, well, I know categorically and while you know categorically what is meant when that is said, we are well aware of the differences I find myself certainly longing for both. 
And if I'm to be honest, even like that sustained joy that is supposed to sort of always be there just doesn't feel like it's always there, does it? Especially when trials come or when things are not nicely put together, when all is not well in the world, which is always. We long for that sustained joy and even that sense of general happiness and euphoria and to even be able to feel that even when we are suffering. Wow, how amazing would that be? In the parable of the sower, as I just read, there are four soils that seed is scattered onto. The seed on the path, the evil one comes and he takes it away. The seed on rocky ground is received but it has no root, and so when trials arise, he falls away. The seed um, in the thorns is choked out by the cares of the world, and the seed on the good, fertile soil is the one who hears and understands, and it says it bears fruit. Good soil, he sees, he hears it, he understands it, and it bears fruit. Okay, what's this fruit? What is fruit? Well, you go to Galatians 5 to learn about that fruit, don't you? That's the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. And actually, one of the first named qualities of that fruit, the second one is joy. The first is love. Second only to love, which is the very essence of God. It's the greatest commandment to love God and to love people. Yes, preach. Let's go. That's right. We need more of that. I love that. Um, And so it must mean that one who hears the word and understands the word receives the fruit of the spirit in all of its fullness. That's what the fourth soil is. That's the fruit that it bears. The fruit of the spirit. Joy being one of the hallmarks of it. But notice the language in verse 20. The seed sown on rocky ground is the one who hears and receives it, what does it say? With joy. So there was somebody else, there was a different, there was a different heart that received it with joy, but it didn't last. When trials came, it says, he falls away. When a time of testing arrives, they fall away. They receive the word with joy, but when the weather changed, they head home. In the book, uh, Pilgrim's Progress, one of the most sold Christian books ever written by John Bunyan in 1688. Uh, The entire book is presented as a a dream uh, sequence, and it's narrated by this omniscient uh, creator or narrator. Um, The allegory's protagonist is named Christian. And the plot centers on his journey from his hometown, which is the city of destruction, uh, the world, to the celestial city, heaven, atop Mount Zion. Um, Christian, throughout the story, you you read that he's weighed down by this great burden, it's called, which is the knowledge of his sin, which he believes came from his reading, um, of the book in his hand, it's called, which is the Bible. And on his journey, he meets evangelist, 
uh, as he is walking out in the fields, who directs him to the wicket gate for deliverance. <clears throat> and since um, Christian cannot see the wicket gate in the distance, um, evangelist directs him to go to a shining light, which Christian thinks that he sees. And so Christian leaves his home, his wife, and his kids to save himself. He cannot persuade them to accompany him. And two characters, obstinate and uh, pliable, go after Christian to bring him back, but Christian refuses to come back. Um, Obstinate returns disgusted, completely disgusted that he would be pursuing this. But pliable is actually persuaded to go with Christian. And so pliable goes with him on this journey. Pliable's journey with Christian is cut short, though, uh, when the two of them fall into the, the slew of despond. Um, and when this happens, Pliable says this. He says, is this the happiness you have told me of? If we have such ill speed at our first setting out, what may we expect before our journey's end? He struggles out of the pit and he goes home because of the trial. Notice the heart that fell away in the trial at one point, even for pliable, for at one point he was receiving the truth with joy. He was excited to be on the journey. And notice the only difference that made him fall away. Hard times, a challenge, something difficult happens. The joy is gone. But again, notice that the seed planted in good soil simply hears the word, understands it, and bears fruit, meaning it grows. And so for the remainder of my time and our time, I just I want to take us to Psalm 126 to answer this question. What is it that that good seed understands, or what, what is that understanding? What is it? What does this person, this heart, understand? Hears and understands. What is that understanding? Especially if what they understand is that he is the key to sustain joy. What does that look like for the believer? Psalm 126. Um, let me read it for us briefly. Just on the front end here. It says this. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. I'll explain this in a second. We were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negeb. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Um, Psalm 126 to 128 begins and ends in Zion. And these are the songs of ascent. And while on uh, pilgrimage to the temple three times a year for Passover, uh, the Feast of Booths, and the Feast of Weeks. 
um, they, would, they would sing these songs. The people would sing on their spiritual journey. Um, and so this particular psalm is a, is a community song. It's a communal song <clears throat> to proclaim God as the one who brings joy. God is the one who gives them joy on their journey. Even maybe when they're acquainted with grief or sorrow or pain or suffering. It begins again, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. Pause there for a second. This is post-exilic longing for restored fortune. They had been set free from Babylonian captivity at this point. And the hope the hope was that the post-Babylonian exile would be full of good and blessing and flourishing. But we know that just was not the case. We know from other passages that post-exile for the Israelite people was anything but a joyous return. It was brutal. Rather, it was full of economic hardship and struggle and famine and disunity among the people. That's what we see more commonly appearing. So how then could the people have such perspectives as they sing these songs of ascent? What did they understand? Again, like the seed and good soil understood that would bear much fruit. And here it is. This is it. That the Lord will restore joy to his people who dwell in sorrow. They believe that that the Lord will restore joy to his people who dwell in sorrow, which is all of us. Again, remember the second soil? Joyful reception until what happened? And in that moment, there's no longer joy, there's no longer trust in the Lord. They forget, they do not believe. They do not believe that the Lord will restore the fortune. The exiles returning to Zion, remember their experience, it says, like a vivid dream. They did not think they were dreaming, but they were so much in a state of joy that they felt like they were dreaming. Have you ever been filled so much with so much joy in your life where you feel like you're dreaming? Maybe at the birth of a child. Um, if, you know, if you don't pass out, because that was that's crazy to watch for the dude, at least. Um, but there's a lot of joy, a lot of joy. It's a crazy experience, but there's a lot of joy. There's this euphoric feeling of like, this is a, a life that I am gonna have in my life for the rest of my life, that God has granted me and gifted me. Maybe it's the birth of a child, or maybe it's your wedding day, or maybe just on a more regular basis, just those moments where maybe you're at the park and there's a cool breeze and the kids are playing nicely, and you just, the sun is kind of coming through the clouds, and you just go, like, everything is right in the world. There's that sense of joy that you can experience and that kind of euphoric feeling. Zion here is not in that place. The, the people, the Israelites here are not in that place as they're pursuing the celestial city. And yet, and yet, and yet, they can sing these words. In verses two and three, it says, the people are filled with laughter and joy. Even the na other nations 
joined them in declaring the Lord's great deeds for Israel. Isn't that crazy? They recognize how great the Lord has been to them. He has made them glad. Their joy had come from the Lord. Then in verses four through six, although Israel had been restored, they also knew, though, that more restoration was needed. We're unaware of this. Redemption had been accomplished. They had been set free, but its application would have, would, would, was going to be continuously needed for them. And here the psalmist provides two images of renewal. One of, that, that is a sudden renewal. It's, it's, a, it's a hard rain that would come. And the other is, is, a, is a slow renewal of a seed. And so what did they understand again? That the Lord restored us before and he will do it again. What looks like nothing but dirt and weeds can become beautiful again. He will bring the rain and he will fill the streams. And when he does, the seed will begin to grow again. Is the imagery we're given. The promise of restoration encourages the exiled people, the post-exiled people, and sustains the suffering. Now the psalmist wraps up in verses five and six with this. Let me read it. Um, Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. That's very, like I picture Job there, to be honest. We don't have time to get into that, but um, talk about a man who suffered and continued to experience the joy of the Lord. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Okay. So, um, what does this point to, those two verses? And how does this work? Again, we ask, what did the psalmist understand? This is prophetic stuff. How will those who weep, like it sounds nice, right? How, How will those who weep reap with shouts of joy? How will that convert? Well, this is Savior talk. This is Messiah talk. This is Messianic pointing. The promise of weeping, like like returning to joy, is Advent language. It's that waiting language, but it's the belief that it's coming. It's the belief that it's coming. This is believing that he is with us language. This is not like, come on, Israel, let's grit it out and sing some songs and be happy about it and come on, let's be be joyful, choose joy. You can't choose joy always. What if you don't, it's not, no, joy chooses you. God grants you the joy that you need to sustain you. This is we have the presence of God with us. Us. We need something better. It cannot be experiential or external or like gritted out inside. We need something that transcends to come and give us this sort of joy. We need God. 
And now, beautifully and wonderfully, and what a gift, church, we're on the other side of this. Our Messiah has come. We are on the other side of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. We can say with every last drop of confidence, those who go out weeping shall come home with shouts of joy. Zion's greatest treasure came down from heaven as an infant. As they were making their pilgrimage, they imagined all that God would accomplish. They had no idea how much he would suffer for them because they didn't know Christ yet. They dreamed of a joyful restoration, and yet even that came through trial. It came at the greatest cost, at the greatest of sorrows. Not only the coming of Jesus, but that he would bear a cross that would atone for every sin, for every tear, for every sorrow. The story of victory and joy doesn't end, though, on a sorrowful cross. Appearing to nearly 500 people who witnessed the resurrected Christ before his ascension. Did you know this? Appearing to nearly 500 people who witnessed the resurrected Christ before his ascension, he began gathering for himself a people that would be people who would sing songs of ascent. Songs of praise, songs of hope, songs of joy. There is understanding that joy comes in the morning for the church. That in the valley is not the time to lose the joy or the trust in him, but rather to look upwards. This is one of the greatest hallmarks of the people of God. That we know a resurrected Christ. A recognition that while the Lord will return to restore the fortunes of all the earth, to make right what has been broken, to put it all back together once and for all, he, church, has already come. And the optic of the Christian is one of the Lord has done great things for us. And because of that, we are glad. We are glad. Let me pray for us. Father, if we don't get this right, what a, what a, tragedy that the people of God who have been given the joy of the Lord would make it known to all the earth. The world is fractured and broken. The shalom we feel is just not always there. But what is always there is you and your presence and your fullness of joy. We thank you that you desire to give us fullness of joy. And actually, according to John 17, that you pray for our fullness of joy. We thank you that when all feels right in the world, we can know your joy. We can know your joy in the boredom. And yes, we can even know your joy in the trials and the sorrows, which is so much of life. 
We can have this only because it is a joy that is given to us by you. As we fix our sights on restored fortunes. And we are glad. We confess that far too often we fixate on all you have not done. Would you turn our hearts in those moments? Fill us afresh with the glorious joy of the salvation that you have won for us. We pray all this in the name of Christ, Christ alone. Amen, amen, and amen.